It's been a few weeks. I think Jack Douglas was here last week. And we're still continuing on our summer series of God's sovereignty and our responsibility to do various things and how they fit together. So this morning we'll be talking, somewhat touching on the question, if God is sovereign, why do we pray? Um, if God has, he knows what's going to happen, he's ordained things to happen, what do our prayers do any good, why should we pray? Um, and again, we're, we're going to be running up against mysteries that we can't fully understand, uh, but I hope to show from scriptures today that uh, we, we need to be encouraged that our prayers are significant. We're not just talking to the air. Uh, we're not just praying to change our own perspective on things, but we're actually, uh, God is actually using our prayers to accomplish his will. So let's, uh, let's begin with prayer and um, we'll go to the word. Father, thank you for this morning and the chance to gather. We thank you for giving us pleasant weather. Um, it's been some warm days this summer. We thank you for your mercies to us, even with the temperature. Thank you that we can gather with your people and um, just the refreshment that we have by having a Lord's Day when we generally set aside the, the affairs and the concerns of this earth and of uh, working with unbelievers or being with unsafe family members. Um, and we can just gather with your people and have this foretaste of eternity. And we celebrate today because it's Resurrection Sunday. Every first day of the week is the day when Christians gather to remember that because Christ rose from the dead, we have a, a sure and certain hope. We have someone who lives in heaven to intercede for us and who was promised to come back and to take us to be with himself. We just ask for your, your kindness and your grace with us this morning, that your spirit would give us understanding and help us to fight against these temptations. We know they come from, from Satan uh, to discourage us from prayer. They come from our own pride and unbelief. And they come from the pressures of the world. But we ask that you would give us grace this morning uh, through a little bit clearer understanding of your word to persevere in prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if your thoughts are like mine, when you find out we're going to be talking about either prayer or evangelism, you get that, uh, here we go again, uh, time to feel guilty time. Right? You know, we feel like as Christians we do pretty good in a lot of areas. We talk about prayer evangelism. We all know that we we have a long way to go when it comes to to growing in our Christian life. And I found this interesting story um, between uh, George Whitfield um, and, John, and John Wesley. They were two good friends most of their lives. Some of their theological differences caused them to part company at a point in their life. But at one point in their life, they were um, preaching together and they were doing this uh, preaching outdoor, probably outdoors. And it's, uh, this is from James Boyce's um, book, the book Foundations of the Christian Faith. And he says, at one point in the course of their long and very influential ministries, George Whitfield, the Calvinistic evangelist, and John Wesley, the Arminian evangelist, were preaching together. They conducted several services during the day and returned to prepare for bed. When they were ready, each knelt beside his bed to pray. Whitfield, the Calvinist, prayed like this, Lord, we thank you for all those with whom we spoke today, and we rejoice that their lives and destinies are entirely in your hand. Please bless our efforts according to your perfect will. Amen. And he then climbed into bed. Wesley, who had hardly gotten past the beginning of his prayer at this length of time, he looked up and said, Mr. Whitfield, is this where your Calvinism leads you? In other words, you're just going to go to bed now, you're going to give up on prayer. Then he put his head down and went on praying. Whitfield stayed in bed and went to sleep. About two hours later, he woke up, and there was Wesley still on his knees beside the bed. Whitfield got up, went around to where Wesley was kneeling, and touched him. Wesley was asleep. Whitfield said, Mr. Wesley, is this where your Arminianism leads you? And Boyce goes on to say, this isn't meant to imply that Calvinists inevitably fail to pray simply because of their theology or that Arminians fail to pray because of human weakness. But it's clear that even the most zealous Christians have difficulties in prayer. So 
we know that prayer is, is something we struggle with as believers. And one of the reasons we struggle with it is through unbelief or misunderstanding. And often unbelief and misunderstanding go, to, go together. Um, so the more barriers we can remove to prayer, the more we'll be able to pray without difficulty. And so one of those things I hope to do today is to clear up some of those miscommunications or misunderstandings that we have about prayer. What is prayer? What is prayer? How would you define prayer? It's kind of like, oh, don't answer the easy questions. They're, they're too hard to answer. Or do you feel like I'm going to give you an answer that's so simplistic I'm not going to be bother to answer? But what is prayer when we think about it? Speaking to God. Okay, that's a broad category. What might we include in that speaking to God? Dale. Fellowship with the Lord through the Spirit. Good. That's an emphasis on the relationship, and I think that's one aspect that we tend to minimize when we're talking about prayer. John. Well, it breaks down in this way. Worshiping the Lord, telling him who he is, you know, praising him, telling, telling him uh, what he does, and then after all that, he can say, what is your request, my, my child? Then okay. petition. Good. So praise and petition. I think those are two. Uh, those are the two categories I had. We can kind of put everything else we say about prayer into those two categories of praise, which could c- include contemplating God's person and his work, and also thanking God for his person and his work. Now that's praise, that's one part of that. But then petition, when we can pray for ourselves or for someone else. We can pray according as we look at the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. You can summarize the three things that Jesus asks for in there um, under the categories of pardon, provision, and protection. Pardon for our sins, provision for our needs, protection from evil, and from Satan. So our petitions kind of fall into those three categories. But in, in, in the midst, and of course, we don't, we don't think, well, if God is sovereign, why should we pray? Well, we don't ask ourselves that about the praise category because, well, we, we, we know our praise is just thanking God and, and celebrating God for his goodness. But our real dilemma comes in when we think of why should I ask God? If I'm asking God for something and he's already determined what's going to happen, is my prayer just a waste of my time? And I think this is a real struggle that we have. And it's, it's a false dichotomy, but it's a real struggle that we have uh, because we don't understand um, how these two things fit together. And what I want to say a little bit today is that we don't have to understand that these, how these things fit together. We just have to know that they do. Um, I, I thought of, you know, if you, you, you know, I'm trying to think of somebody from history who wouldn't understand what a car is. If you went back to King Arthur and you brought him into the future and you sat him down in a car and you said, you know, all you have to do, this thing drives. It doesn't need horses. You know, you just put your foot on the gas and go. And he, he could ask you all kinds of questions like, well, I don't think I'm where the horses. I don't see any kind of I don't see the slaves pulling me. I don't see the, the, the captives, prisoners of war carrying me or anything like this. I don't see any source of power. All I see is this box with wheels, and I don't believe it can do anything. But if you set him in the seat and you put his foot on the gas pedal and start to move, his doubting, he wouldn't stop doubting. He's like, I don't, have, I don't have to understand how this works. I just know that it does work. And so for us as believers, we, we need to kind of step aside from the, I've got to understand how this works before I can do it. No, we just need to understand that it does work and that God designed it to work. And once we understand that, then we can stop letting our confusion about how God's sovereignty and our questions and our petitions and prayers fit together. Just believe that they do. And so I think that's really important. Uh, Asking how, if God is sovereign, why pray? is really a question of we're asking how can this fit together? It's not so much why we pray, but how can it fit together if God already has a plan, how our prayers fit with that? And so that's what I want to consider because... Some of the barriers to prayer are, like I mentioned earlier, is unbelief and misunderstanding. 
Um, if you find yourself saying, have you ever, ever asked yourself this question or, or said, um, I've done everything I can in this situation. All I can do is pray. Ever said that or had that feeling before? All I can do now is pray. If you're saying that, then you don't really understand how important prayer is or what it's doing. If we understood what prayer was and what it did, we would probably pray first and ask questions later. Pray first and act later. It's interesting when the apostles, when they set aside the deacons in Acts chapter 6, it said they're going to devote themselves to prayer and to preaching. And we know all about preaching. We love preaching. We do a lot of preaching here. We do a lot of preaching in good, in good Bible-believing churches. But they said they're going to devote themselves first to prayer and then to preaching as well. And so there is an efficacy, there's, a, there's an effectiveness in prayer that we need to be reminded of. And it's not just um, saying what our desires are to God and hoping that he'll help us out. And as Dale mentioned at the beginning, we don't realize that prayer is communion with God as we are. I was reading a really good book, and I'll suggest this to you. It's called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. I won't really reference that today. But there's a sense in which we feel like we have to come to God, and we have to uh, spend a half hour talking to him. And as soon as we do, you know, two sentences in, we, our to-do list popped up in our mind. Um, or we realize we've gone off. To, I'm going to spend five minutes just thanking God for who he is. And after three sentences, I'm like, I really have this burden. I just want to take to him right away. I don't want to wait until I praise him first. And there's this, all this, um, the, the, we, we focus so much on the structure of the prayer. And just like uh, the, the, the Paul Miller in his book, he illustrates, said, if you were to sit around the table at a family meal and you were to focus on the conversation itself rather than focusing on the people you're talking to, how bizarre that would be to sit down at a meal and your, your daughter's across the table, your wife's across the table, and instead of looking at them and thinking about them, you're thinking about, am I using the right words? Should I have said this before I said that? And you start to dissect the conversation rather than just focus on the person who the, who's there that you're talking to. And we tend to do that a lot in prayer. One of the most important things that we have to understand when we're coming to God in prayer is that we're talking to a perfect father. Uh, I said sometimes we come to him like he's a deadbeat dad. Like, I know you probably don't care. I know I'm a, I'm a nobody. Um, you already got your plan made up. So here's my, here's my prayer. Here's my hope. I'd like to have this. I could really use that. But I know you're, you're big and I'm small. So um, for what it's worth, here's what I'm hoping. Here's what, my, here's what I'm praying for. But that's not who God is at all. Uh, when I preached on God as our father back in March, uh, he's conti- God's continued to help me understand him and see him more as a father. And that really has changed the way my prayers have been, and I would say, in the past six months. Coming to him as a father first. We don't say, dear Heavenly Father, because Jesus said, start your prayer with dear Heavenly Father or our Father who art in heaven. That's not just, you know, writing a letter. Um, you could write a letter to a judge. You could write a letter to uh, somebody you're in a lawsuit with. And you could start off the word dear. Uh, just because that's how we start letters. We start conversations. It doesn't really mean that person's dear to us. It's just a formality. And some, sometimes in our prayers, we can do the same thing. We can forget that we're coming to a father. And any of us as fathers, or even if you're not a father, but you can conceive or you had a father or had a good father, you can understand what a father does and wants for his children. He wants to bless them. He wants them, give them good things if they ask for them, if it's not going to be harmful for them. And so we, we, we come to him with confidence as we're talking to a father that he delights to answer our prayers. But the challenge we run into considering some of the things we looked at this year. And we know we come to a father. We know we come to a father who's generous and good. And yet, we come to a father who, it's also said of him in Job 42 too, I know that you can do everything, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
And so we come in and we say, God, I'd really like to have this house. This, I'd really like to have this house in this location. But our thought is, well, maybe God knows that that house isn't good for me, so I won't even bother praying, or I'll just say, well, you probably won't give this to me anyway, but I'll, I'll ask just in case. You already have your plan and your purposes laid out, but here's my request, and I hope that maybe you'll hear me, and maybe somehow it can fit in with your plan. Or we read in Ephesians 1.11, he, God has predestined everything according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his, his will. And if we don't have God as a good God or as a good father, and we just have a God who works all things according to the counsel of his will, then we're not coming to him as he truly is. We're not coming to him with that affectionate uh, desire to give, desire to be generous kind of God that he is. We're coming to him as a king who just does what he likes in the heavens and our plans and our hopes and our dreams have nothing to do with his plans or purposes for us. But we want to correct that um, and talk about why we pray then if God is sovereign. What I want to do is just show, even if we can't completely understand how our prayers and God's sovereignty work together, if we can just demonstrate that prayers accomplish things by looking at scripture then we'll have some ammunition for ourselves when that temptation comes. Is my prayer really going to do anything? Is it really getting anything done? So I want to go back to Genesis, and I want to look at some of the prayers of the Bible just to show that prayers do accomplish things in God's world. At the end, we'll get back to how does this fit together, and we'll try to consider some of these things. But what we just need, we just need a massive dose, and Pastor Rodney kind of really gave us this pattern early on, is we don't understand how things fit together. We just have to know that things are true. And so I, was, I started flipping through the Bible. I flipped through Genesis last night. I flipped through Exodus just looking for examples of prayer. And prayer isn't always bending down in, in, on my knees and saying things. Sometimes it's a groaning of the heart. Sometimes it's a cry to God. Um, so we shouldn't always say, well, I didn't see Abraham sit down and bow his, head, bow his uh, head and close his eyes, and he prayed, and we got this request. I'm looking at where does a human cry out or say something to God, and then God responds to them. And of all strange places, and I think this really shows the kind of God that we're dealing with, the first person who asks God for something and gets it is a man named Cain. And that's in Genesis chapter 4, after he's killed his brother, and after God's pronounced punishment on him, Cain says, well, God says, you know, you're going to be cursed, you're going to go out from the land, and you're going to be a fugitive and a vagabond. And in Genesis 4.13, Cain says to the Lord, My punishment's greater than I can bear. Surely you've driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I will be hidden from your face. I'll be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. So what's he doing? He's, he's expressing the desires of his heart. I'm not saying Cain's even a converted person. I'm just saying here's a human talking to God with a request, with a complaint. His attitude's not right. He's not repentant, but he's, re- he's, he's expressing a desire of his heart. And even in this, even, in a man, even for a man named Cain, God says, The Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. So here, even God responds to the prayer, to the request, to the complaint, to the bad attitude of someone named Cain. And I want us to see this because I think it helps us to realize the disposition that God has towards human beings in general, specifically, even more so, to those who are his people, to those that he loves. 
So that's the first example. Cain says, my punishment's too hard for, for me to bear. And God says, okay, I'll set a mark on you so that anyone finding you will um, have to be avenged seven times. So the next prayer is in another strange situation, is in Genesis 17. We find that in the story of the man of Abraham. You know, Abraham's not a perfect person. He's a good, he's set forward as a model of a faithful person. But he has this problem in that he's tried to fix his childlessness by having relations with his Egyptian handmaid. And he has a son named Ishmael. And God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to set up my covenant with your true son, with Isaac. And he's concerned about the effect that that's going to have on Ishmael. Because Abraham's a father, he's a good father, he loves his son Ishmael, even though he's not the true son of the covenant. But Abraham says in Genesis 17, 18, he has this request. And he says, oh, that Ishmael may live before you. Couldn't Ishmael be the answer to my prayer? Couldn't Ishmael be the one? Because there's no way. I'm 100 years old now. There's no way I could have a son. Oh, that Ishmael may, may, may live before you. So, again, he's expressing the desire of his heart to God. I want Ishmael to live before you. And we don't exactly know all that he has intended in that request. Maybe it's just that um, Ishmael would be a godly son or Ishmael would be the one through whom the, the, the promises would be fulfilled so he doesn't have to have his faith stretched by having another son when he's 100. But God says, no, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you will call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and I will make him fruitful and he will multiply him exceedingly. He will beget 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. So God, even if Abraham didn't completely know exactly what he was asking for there. He prayed, he, he, re, he expressed his request to God, and God says, I have heard you, and I will make your son fruitful. I will bless him. Now, we know that from Ishmael come the, those who will be in, in perpetual enmity against the Jewish people. And yet in the life of Ishmael himself, God hears the prayer of Abraham, and he answers it. He does live before him. And then a, a much more famous time of prayers in Genesis 18 when Abraham goes to intercede for the city of Sodom. We're all familiar with this passage. I won't read it, but, you know, God says, I'm going to destroy Sodom. And, and Abraham's great burden is that God will destroy the righteous with the wicked. And he says to, in verse eight, chapter 18, verse 23, Abraham came near and said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous people that are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So Abraham's great burden is that God would be unjust by punishing righteous people within the city of Sodom. And that's why he keeps saying, well, if you find 50, if you find 40, if you find 30, if you find 10. God, and what he's doing, he's arguing God's character for a burden, he's interceding for the city of Sodom, for the righteous people who may be in the city of Sodom. He knows his, his, uh, his nephew Lot is there. And he's interceding for these people here in Sodom. And his prayer is that God would not be unjust. And he gives us in this an example of how we should argue with God in prayer. If we have a burden, if we're trying to intercede for someone else, we use God's character, we use his promises, not against him, but toward him, and saying, God, you're just. You don't punish the righteous who've done nothing wrong. And in the end, he does not 
get his request in one sense because Sodom is destroyed. But in another sense, his answer is his prayer is answered because God spares the righteous. God gets Lot and his family out of town. And so God does not destroy the righteous with the wicked. And so in that sense, Abraham's prayer is answered, although not quite in the way that he had expected. But again, God hears the prayer of Abraham and God spares Lot and, and the other who may have been righteous in, in the city. Then again, another strange request from another strange character that we wouldn't expect for being a, the prayer warrior. But again, it's God hearing the prayer. It's in Genesis chapter 24 at verse 12. I'm sorry, um, Genesis 21. Here, Hagar has been sent out and, and banished because Sarah doesn't want her around because she has her son now. And she doesn't want Hagar with this uh, this stepchild or this half-brother to her true uh, covenant son. And so she, Hagar and Ishmael, who's about, it's a strange story because if you read this, it's a, it calls them a lad or the child, but we know that um, by, by doing calculations, uh, Ishmael's at least 13 or 15 years old here, so he's not a little baby, a little boy. But in any case, they're out in the desert, and in Genesis 21, they're, they're running out of water in, their, in the wilderness. In Genesis 21, 15, it says she placed the boy under one of the shrubs because the water was gone. And she went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bow shot, for she said to herself, let me not see the death of the, my son or my, of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad. This is Ishmael. This isn't Isaac. This isn't the godly line. This isn't David or Samuel or, or, or Solomon. This is, this is Ishmael. God heard the voice of the boy, the lad, and the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift him up, and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. So again, what are we seeing? We're seeing that when people cry out to God, even if they're not necessarily regenerate people, this is the kind of gracious God that we're dealing with when we come in prayer. And it's quite amazing that, again, we're not trying to... We, we, we focus too much on the how. We focus too much on the mechanics of prayer. What's the point of praying? If God's already got the plan made up, what's the point of praying? These people in their desperation, they didn't ask that question. They just said, where else can I turn? I turn to the one who is the only one who can help. I'm not thinking out his plans and his purposes and how my prayers fit in with his plans and purposes. I'm just crying out to a God who's merciful, who can hear my prayer. And if he weren't sovereign, he couldn't help. But because he is sovereign and he has all the power in the world, he's the only one who can help me in this situation. And we see this deliverance. Again, over in chapter 24, this is amazing. We see how this fits together. The direct answer to God's prayer. How he begins to move even before the person begins to pray. And yet the prayer is used to accomplish the purpose. In Genesis 24, this is when Abraham's servant is sent out to get a bride for Isaac. And if you know the story, you probably know it fairly well. This is one of the more familiar stories from Scripture. He goes there, and he, he kind of does this test. You know, the first woman that comes out, if she does this, if she does that, if she feeds my camels and me, then I'll know she's the one. But it says in Genesis 24 and verse 12, the, the servant gets out there, and he says, Lord God of my master Abraham. Please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, 
please let down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one that you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Now, he doesn't know. I mean, he's, he's coming in. He's living in Israel. They're up in like Haran, which is way north of Israel. He's a stranger in this area. He doesn't know these people. He doesn't know one person from another. He doesn't know Laban's daughter from anybody else's daughter. But he's trying to find someone from that family to bring back to Isaac. And so what does he do? He just, God, let, let this be the one. I, I, don't, I don't have any other ideas. Let this be the one. Let her be the one that you've appointed. In verse 15, it says, And it happened before he'd even finished speaking, that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Even before he'd begun finish speaking. And later he recounts that story over in verse 45. And he says, Before I had finished speaking in my heart, there was Rebekah coming out with her pitcher on her shoulder. And she went down to the well and drew water. And I said, Please get me a drink. And he goes on to recount the story. But again, God working in the hearts of people to accomplish his will so that Rebecca would be the one that marries Isaac. I'll, I'll reference this book. This, I think Pastor Rodney's got this back, different cover, but it's back there on the book table. It's called, a book called If God Already Knows, Why Pray? If God Already Knows, Why Pray? by Douglas Kelly. And I, I reference this a bit in my preparations this morning. But one of the things he describes or hints at is that often when God wants to accomplish something in the world, he will prompt someone to pray for that thing. And so as they begin to pray, he's already started the wheels of, of, um, of providence in motion. And there's an amazing story in here. I'll share this as an, as an anecdote. It's a pastor friend of his who was, uh, he was at a conference, and he really felt the need to, um, to promote missions more in his church. And so he had missionaries come, and they, they talked. And he just sitting in the pew in the back as a, as, a, just as a receiver, not a preacher that morning. And his heart was really burdened. And he thought, well, I was trying to get world missions stirred up in my congregation, but I'm wondering if God's working in my heart. And he says, well, I know it's a strange thought, um, but it just, it just struck him so strongly that this, is, this may be of God, what's happening here, my conviction. And he's thinking about the country of Korea. Evidently, that's what the missionary was talking about. But he said, well, he said, I don't normally do this. He said, I'm going on vacation for two weeks. And... Um, he, would, he doesn't only, it's called putting out a fleece in a sense, you know, like, God, if, this, if you let this happen, then I'll know it's you talking to me kind of a thing. It's not generally a good way to conduct life, but it's not, there's biblical precedent for it. It's not necessarily wrong to do that. And this situation proves to be quite, quite amazing. So he goes to um, uh, this two-week vacation, pretty much sure that God's, he said, basically, he said, if anybody mentions Korea in the next two weeks, then I'll think that maybe God is calling me and I should look into this further. And he says, well, I'm for, he's going to be gone for two weeks. He's not going to see anybody from his church. So there's really a low percentage chance that anybody's going to mention the word Korea in the next two weeks. This is in northern rural area of Scotland. And the, uh, he gets in the car the very first day he's, he's on vacation. He sees an old friend, and he's just sharing with him some things, of, 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 some things that have been on his mind. And the friend randomly says, he says, well, maybe God's calling you to Korea. Um, it's like, well, maybe. But that was, that was, that was enough to get him to start thinking about that seriously. And then he eventually did go on, you know, seeking counsel, many other things, to Korea. But he got to Korea, and he gets a knock on the door from some Korean pastors. 
And to shorten the story, they basically said, you know, we've been praying that someone would come and teach us how to preach. And we began praying on this month of this year. And it was the same month and year in which this guy got this prompting and this confirmation. And so in other words, God, these pastors in Korea start to pray. And God has a pastor in, a missionary in, uh, God lays a burden on a pastor in Scotland to have a conference about missions. And God so works that the missionary speaks about Korea. And he so works that his friend mentions Korea. So in other words, when we try to figure out one way that sovereignty and our prayers fit together is that God will often stir up someone to pray for something that he wants to have accomplished. And so when you feel burdened to pray for someone, it very well may be that God wants to do something in that person's life, but you need to pray for it. And so our prayers fit together in such a way that God has a plan that he's working out and often prompts us to pray. John Calvin likens it to, in a sense, almost like a key that unlocks the doors. Like the promises are there. But you've got to go in and ask for them. That's all you've got to do. <clears throat> and so I just use this illustration because that, that the story of the, the Scottish pastor and this man here in Genesis 24 are so similar. But there's so many other examples of this. When, when Jacob goes back, and some of these I'll just mention rather than actually reading them all. When Jacob has been, Jacob's on the run. He's out of town, and he's been gone for 14 or almost 21 years now. <clears throat> because of his sins against his family, against, against Esau. But God says it's time to go back to the land of Israel. You know, you've got your wife, you've got your 12 kids, your wives, 12 kids, come back to the land of Israel. Well, Jacob knows he, his brother, has every reason to attack him when he crosses over into the, into the Canaan, into, into the land of, of his people. And so he's really concerned, and he prays in Genesis 32.9, and he begs that God would protect him from Esau. He knows he deserves to be attacked for what he did. Now, Jacob, he prays that God will protect him, but he also comes up with all these crazy ideas like let, let, put the sons of the less desirable wives out front and put lots of gifts out front, and maybe that'll appease my brother. So Jacob's kind of, you know, hedging all his bets. Well, I'm going to do some prayer here, but I'm also going to come up with every conniving plan I can come up with to protect myself. I'll let my chosen sons be in the back um, for protection. But what happens when he gets there to Genesis, in Genesis 33? He gets there, and Esau, God has changed Esau's heart. Esau welcomes Jacob. He said, I don't even want your gifts. You know, I'm so glad to see you. So God answered Jacob's prayer in that situation. He prayed. Esau's heart was changed. Jacob didn't even need to bring all these gifts and all the, all the conniving that he had done. So although he had made plans to defend himself, they, those plans weren't even necessary. And we could go on. This goes on into Exodus. So just a, f- a few examples from Exodus. There's just so much. When you read the scriptures, just, just if you're finding yourself doubting why you should pray if God already has a plan, just go back through scripture and find examples like this and say, I don't under- have to understand why this works or how this works. All I under- need to know is that it does work. It does work when I pray. God answers prayer. Um, several times when Pharaoh wants the plagues to end, he asks Moses to pray for him and the plagues stop. He asks the frogs to stop, and Moses entreats the Lord, and it says in Exodus eight twelve, the Lord did according to the word of Moses. Pharaoh says, get rid of the flies, please. Moses prays to the Lord, and it says in Exodus 8, the Lord did according to the word of Moses. Pharaoh asks for the hail to stop, and the hail and the storm stop. Pharaoh asks for the locusts to go away. Moses prays to the Lord, and God sends a very strong east-west wind to drive the locusts out. And so, again, God is responding to the prayers of a human. We don't exactly know how that all fits together, but we don't need to. We just know that we need to know that it does. 
Then we get examples of the Israelites. when They're in the wilderness, and they need water. And they're complaining that they need water. God's set them free by bringing them through water. Now they complain that God can't give them water to drink. And they complain to Moses. Moses cries out to God, Exodus 15. And then God shows him a tree, and he puts this tree in the water. It makes the tree drink, water drinkable. The people complain the very next chapter and say, okay, you got us water. Can you get us food? They're complaining. They're crying out to God. Their heart and their attitude is not right. But still, God answers, and he sends them manna, which will continue for 40 years. So over and over again, throughout the Old Testament, we see people praying and prayers being answered. Very often, they're not prayers of faith. Very often, they're complaints. But it still shows the disposition that God has to bless and to provide. And so... We can think of other examples. In the Old Testament, when, when David is uh, on the run from his son Absalom, and Ahithophel, who had been a trusted friend of David's, turns on him and begins to give counsel to, to Absalom, God asks that God would turn the counsel of Ahithophel into nothing, and through an amazing series of events, he does that. The New Testament example of someone praying and being effective, where, where can you think of that? When, when you think about so-and-so did something and it worked, when you, when, the New Testament, when you read the New Testament, where's that Old Testament example found? New Testament says, somebody was like us, and they did something, and it worked. The prayer worked. Where is that passage found? Or who's the person? Elijah. Elijah in the book of James, right. You know, the, the, the Old Testament doesn't tell us that Elijah prayed. He just says to Ahab, he says, it's not going to rain. And then he says, now it's going to rain. But James tells us that Elijah prayed, and he's a person like us, just a human being, nobody special. He prayed, and it didn't rain for three years on the earth. And James says... It is the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous person accomplishes much. So set against all this sovereignty of God, God works all things according to the purpose of his own will. Set against all that is the promise, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous person accomplishes much. And the chapter earlier, he said, you do not have because you do not ask. There are some things in life that I do not have because I have not asked for them. How that fits in with God's sovereignty. I need to pray and God will give. And that's what we need to remember. I love the story of, uh, John MacArthur points this out, I, I love the story of the early church when they're praying for Peter in prison. And they're praying, they're praying, God set him free, God deliver him, God deliver him. Well, what happens next? Who can tell me what happens next? Any kids know this story? Or older children who are in here or anything? Big kids, big adults who think they're kids? Anybody want to answer that? Anybody else like that story? What happens at the door when Peter comes knocking? They're praying for uh, uh, George. Right. So what does that show us about the confidence that the church, church thought that their prayer was going to be answered? <laughs> Not that high, right. And how many times do we pray like that? You know, I, we, we, it just, it, I mean, we are like them. You know, we're no different than they are. We're no different than the Israelites in the wilderness. But... You know, we think, well, maybe I didn't have enough faith. Well, look at the church there. They prayed, God answered. And so it's not always how much faith we have. It's just the faithfulness to pray. Yes, we should pray with faith. But even when we don't, God still answers sometimes in amazing and profound ways. And so let that be a reminder to us that the church prayed. Peter come, God sends an angel, gets Peter out of prison, and he's delivered. And we could go on and on with this um, the, the way that the apostles believed in prayer, and even the way that Jesus believed in prayer. You know, we could say, well, why did even, of, of, all, of all people, if Jesus, um, if God is sovereign, why would Jesus even pray? 
And Jesus is the Son of God. He speaks and the world's created. He can speak and he can calm the storm. He can settle the sea. And yet how many times Jesus gets away in the quiet to pray and to enjoy communion with his Father. Jesus believed that his prayers would be effective. And it wasn't specifically because he was the Son of God and says, I can do whatever I want. I'm God, so I don't even need to pray. But he goes back um, in remote places without his disciples, where they're not even around to hear what he's saying. So we know he's not just saying, well, you know, I want you to come into my prayer closet and hear what I have to say um, so that you can pray like me. Uh, He's not just doing it as an example. He's doing it because it's, it's real. It's real prayer, communing with his Father. In fact, his prayers are so strong and so powerful that there's one time when he doesn't pray, and that's in the garden. In the garden, when Peter draws his sword, Jesus said, Do you think I couldn't now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? But how could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? So Jesus was so convinced of the effectiveness of his prayers that he didn't pray in that situation because he knew the 12 angels coming wasn't part of God's plan. 12 legions of angels coming wasn't part of God's plan. So one of the, one of the issues for us is that we know there's that little caveat in Jesus' prayer. If you pray anything according to my will or according to his will, he hears us or he will answer us. So as we're trying to, I'm trying to transition now into a few minutes of just considering how sovereignty and prayer work together and how we can have confidence when we pray if we're not sure how God's plan and purposes work. Anything that God has revealed to us to be his will, we can pray with confidence for. If, God, if Jesus says, pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send, harbor, send uh, laborers into his field, in other words, send, send reapers out, some people have to bring in the lost, the harvest, what kind of confidence can we have that that prayer is going to be answered? We have every confidence in the world that when we pray the kind of prayers that God wants us to pray, that we can have confidence he's going to hear us and that he's going to act upon that. <clears throat> you know, when we, um, we run into this situation a little bit with, with prayer and, I'm uh, sorry, with evangelism and, um, and praying for, for the lost. It's like, well, why should I pray if God, if you've already determined who you're going to save, <clears throat> then what, what good does my prayer do? Well, we all in- instinctively know that Paul says, without a preacher, they can't hear. Without a preacher, they're never going to hear. So God has put preachers in uh, into the plan of salvation. But God has also put prayers into the plan of salvation. In such that, not so much in the plan of salvation as to how someone is saved, but the method or the means through which someone is saved. God has ordained that prayer and preaching would be a part of that. And so we should never think, although there will be constant pressure from world, flesh, and devil to not pray, we should never think that our prayers don't have anything to do with whether somebody's saved or not. They very much do. Our prayers are used by God in ways we cannot understand to, to bring people to himself. He turns the hearts of kings. He can turn the hearts of the unbelievers. But when we come to these situations, when we realize that the closer we can match our prayers to God's revealed will, the more confidence we will have that we're working in step with him. What are some things we know that God wants to happen in this earth that we can pray with absolute 100% confidence those prayers will be answered? John. Simple. He wants all who are in the Lamb's book of life to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay. So we can pray that God would bring lost in to, you know, we don't know this specific person, but we can say, God, I don't know your plans for this person, but I pray that you would save them. And I pray that you would use my prayers as part 
of your work in their life to bring them to salvation. And we've seen people pray for, for months and even decades for people, and they, come to the, and they come to faith. And so, yes, praying that God would save the lost. Anything else that we can pray with, with confidence? Absolute confidence. Okay. Love, compassion, and grace. That, that, that's, really, that's really good. And if I, if I remember, I want to get back to that because I want to talk in a minute about times when we're not sure what God's will is in a situation. Say sickness or financial provision or, um, or safety. Uh, those we're less sure about that. But specific, what are some specific things we can pray for, Seth? Forgiveness. Okay. God's faithful to forgive, yes. But we need to ask for the forgiveness, right? Yes. Anything else? Some of those, those kind of things that we can pray, and we know that God's going to use our prayers as part of what he's doing. Okay, sanctification, right. This is the will of God, your sanctification. So we can go out and we can say, God, I don't know how, but you have told me you want me to grow. You know, I'm to work out my own salvation because you're working in me to will and to do of your good pleasure. So I can go out and pray with confidence that you're going to use my prayers, and you're going to answer them in such a way that I will grow and become more like Christ. Anything else we can think of, Renda? Give, give, me, give, give me faith. Yeah, give me faith to believe. Yes, yeah. And he may do that through giving us a trial because it says the testing of your faith produces endurance. And so that may come in a way we don't expect. But you know, so don't expect God give me patience. And then God says, here, let me get your car break down. Well, that doesn't work. No, that's it's through, the, it's through the broken down car that you're learning patience. So don't expect that the answer is going to look exactly like you expect it to, but he's going to answer it. Anybody else? Braden? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Let me be aware of your presence. Let me, let me have the faith to believe that you are there. You've promised to be with me. Be with me in this situation. Um, any, any other situation where we know we can pray with confidence? Seth? Wisdom. Yes. Pray for wisdom, James says. Let him, if any man doubts, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and does not show partiality, does not abrade, abradeth not. My old King James is coming back to me. I can't remember what that word means, but I know it's, that's, what, that's, that's what it says. Um, so that, those are the situations where we can pray with confidence. We's like, yes, we know that we can pray. But I think for all of us, the, the challenge we find is, what about those times when we're not sure? When this person's sick? When um, I have a family member who's not a believer? Or I need this financial need? If, if I don't get this, I may lose my house. Um, what do we do? What, what are some things we can, what, what are some ways, what are some thoughts we should have in our mind as we're praying when we don't know what God's will in a specific situation is? John alluded to this a little bit, so if anybody remembers what he said or if you have your other idea, I'll get back to John in a second if you can remember. What are some things we can do when we go into something? Say we want to argue with God. Now we can say, God, you said to pray for laborers to go into the field, and so I'm praying, so I'm expecting you to send laborers into the field. But what about when you say, I'm really concerned about my child who's sick, but I'm not sure if you're going to heal him or not. How would we argue with God? How would we plead with God in a situation like that? What are some arguments we would use? Deal. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, yeah. That is, we want his will to be done, although we're not sure what that will always is. And so there's a measure of uncertainty, and yet we can express the longings of our heart as well. And we can just, uh, while it's good to pray that, sometimes we can use that as a fatalistic sense in which, like, I, know, I don't have much hope, but let me try this anyway. But I don't think that's the way God wants us to pray, even though we keep it in the back of our mind. Well, you can, you can also, this would sound strange, but you can also pray, my child with 
the fever with the medical condition is an imbalance. And above all things, above all else, you're also a God of balance. Mm -hmm. I ask, Father, that you would rebalance my child right. in this respect, because healing is a, uh, a method of rebalancing that person's body, that person's bodily functions also. God's a God of order. God does not desire. God did not create a, a, a corrupted world. That, that's true. That, that, that's true. That's one way to think about it. Um, but I, I think when we come to situations like this, finances or um, other things where it's less clear, where it's not revealed as to what He's going to do, we can plead with His. We can we can we can plead on His His character. And I think you alluded to that earlier. We come to God pleading His character. Abraham said, "God, it's not right for the judge of all the earth to destroy the just with the ungodly." You're going to show your wrath on this city. It wouldn't be right for you to pour your wrath out on righteous people. So he didn't know how God was going to do or how he was going to uh, answer that request. But I think when we come to those situations, we can plead God's character, even if we don't know his specific will for a situation. We can plead his character. And so we can say, God, you are good. You love to give good gifts to your children. I'm not sure in this situation if this will be good, but I know your heart is to give and to bless and to be generous. And so I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would be generous. I pray that you would bless me in this situation. Always remembering that, yes, our understanding of what may be good for us may be, may be not right. And, and as Dale pointed out, your will be done ultimately. But I don't think that should always be our first, um, our first thought when we come to prayer because that can often limit the kind of prayers that we pray. I can often say, well, God, you're God. You're that distant dad. You, you don't want to really bless. There should always be that sense of our, our willingness to submit to his will. But Jesus, he pled. He said, God, if there's any other way, please let this, nevertheless, not my will. But that wasn't what drove. He, he was free to express his, his desires. And I don't, I don't think we should ever say or ever make your will be done become the first thing we say. It should always be there, but it shouldn't be because it will often limit the kind of prayers that we pray. Um, look at, um, if you remember, anybody remember the prayer of Jabez? Remember when that was the thing? You know, the WWJD and the prayer of Jabez and then whatever the latest thing is. And um, So let's, let's actually look at the prayer of Jabez, not to get the, the, uh, the weird stuff that went with that back 20 years ago. Uh, the, the charms and the bracelets and the, and the bookmarks and all the other stuff. But let's look at... Um, it's in Chronicles, and if I get the right page, chapter four, chapter four. Yes, you've been reading the prayer of Jabez lately, John. You study that a lot. First Chronicles, chapter four. Yeah. Uh, there it is. Yeah. I can start at verse nine. You want to read verses nine and ten yeah. for us? Okay. Okay, now, if you didn't know about the prayer of Jabez, about 20 years ago, there was a book written called The Prayer of Jabez. And it was one of these little hardbacks about that thick, and it just caught Christian book distributors in the book market by storm. And it was kind of used almost as, um, this little verse was kind of broadened out into this, almost a name-it-claim-it kind of prayer. And um, that was overdone, and it was marketed, and a lot of money was made by the various uh, booksellers and such. 
But at the core of that is this prayer. And it's a simple prayer by a simple person named Jabez. And he just prays, God, would you bless me when you enlarge my territory? Give me more land. Would you be with me? And would you keep me from evil evil, so I would not cause pain? So there, it is not wrong for us to pray these kind of prayers. Bless me, Lord. Give me financial blessing. May I use it for you? But I, maybe it's just my personality. Maybe it's my background. Maybe it's my... Um, Maybe it's me. I'll just say maybe it's me. But I'm thinking maybe there's others like me who we don't tend to have confidence when we go to prayer because we feel like, well, whatever God's given me is all I'm going to get. Um, We grow best by suffering, so I guess God needs to give me more suffering. You ever think that way? That's the way I think a lot. (laughs) I used to say if if it's something I'd really like to do, it must not be God's will because we always grow better when we don't do the things that we really enjoy. Um, This is is mindset that I, 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 I don't know where it came from. Grew up with it in a Christian home wasn't taught, but it's what I caught. And it's, I fight that a lot. And maybe there's others like me that fight that way. But we need to have a confidence that our prayers do accomplish something in God's purposes, that God may choose to bless us. And maybe the reason we haven't been blessed is we simply haven't asked for it. And we need to have that confidence that as, we, as we go forward in prayer that we're talking to a father who loves to bless. And if it's something good that's not going to harm us, he will give it if we ask. But we have to have that sense and confidence. That we can be, uh, we can pray a prayer like Jabez, not as a formula, not as a expectation that uh, it's kind of a name it and claim it sort of a prayer, but to have a desire that God would bless and that God would give even financially, or God, give me a good wife, or God, give me, not me, I've got one, <laughs> sorry, um, <laughs> but um, g- give, me, give me the desires of my heart. You know, show me your goodness because you're a good God. And we can, ar- we can argue, we can plead with God as a father that we're coming to and not say, well, God, I don't know how this fits together with your plan for my life. Um, again, if we just know that it works, we don't have to understand how it works, but it accomplishes his purposes. I alluded to that briefly, and in just a minute, I, I want to talk about uh, how these things fit together, the sovereignty and, and our responsibility. We're faced with these similar situations in many areas of life. We know God chooses for salvation, but we still preach the gospel to every creature. We ask for our daily bread, but nobody sits around waiting for food to show up in the mail. Uh, We know God has a plan for our children, but we also know that a child left to himself causes shame. And so we discipline our children, even though we don't know exactly what God's plan or purposes are for them. Our days are marked out for us. We know that our days are appointed before we're born. And how how many of us, probably not as many as we should... We eat healthy, we exercise, we try to get good rest and sleep, take care of our bodies, we try to put ourselves not in harm's way. And so we take these steps to preserve our lives and extend our lives, and yet there's this principle in which we know our days are marked out for us. But none of us say, well, my days are marked out for me, so I'm just going to sit in front of the television and eat junk food. And that's not how we, that's not how we, we function as Christians, or it shouldn't be how we function as Christians. Um, God says he will complete the work begun in us, and yet we all go to church and we use the means of grace, we use prayer, we use fellowship. But when it comes to prayer, we have the sense and like, well, it's already determined, so what's the point? God has ordained the means as much as he's ordained the ends. This quote from John Calvin says, uh, We see that to us nothing is promised to be expected from the Lord that we are not also told to ask for him in prayer. Here's the promises, but I want you to ask me for them, and then I'll give them. 
So it's true that if we dig up by prayer the treasures that were pointed out by the Lord's gospel. A.A. Hodge, who was a theologian in the 19th century in Princeton, he said, if God has eternally decreed that you should live, what is the use of your breathing? If God has eternally decreed that you should talk, what is the use of you opening your mouth? If God has eternally decreed that you should reap a crop, what's the point of sowing seed? If God has eternally decreed that your stomach should contain food, what's the use of you eating? So we, 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 we see this inconsistency. We know the God's decreed some things, and yet we also know we do some things. We don't sit around waiting for things to happen during the week. But Hodge goes on to say, in order to educate us, God demands that we should use the means, or we will go without the ends that depend on those means. There are plenty of fools who make the nature of eternity and how God's life relates to the life of man as an excuse for neglecting prayer. But of all the many fools in the United States, this is in the 19th century, of all the many fools in the United States, there is not one crazy enough to make the same eternal decree an excuse for not chewing his food or for not voluntarily inflating his lungs. We don't rely on the eternal decrees of God and then just forget about all of the things we do as humans. That's not how we treat anything else in life. And yet there's this natural tendency to do that with prayer. And I just wanted to show from this morning that that's not the way prayer works. Prayer does work, even if we don't understand how it all fits together. But that's not the question we should be asking. We should be going back and encouraging ourselves. We have a good, gracious God who wants to answer prayer. And the emphasis of prayer is more on the fellowship with him and less on the, mean, the structure of, did I get my five points of prayer? Did I pray five minutes? Do I get the four R's or whatever your, your acronym is going to be, acts or whatever it is. The point is fellowship with the Father, prayer, uh, petition, and praise. So it's a quick overview. Again, this book is really helpful. If God know, already knows why I pray, if you really want to get into this deeper, I recommend this. Well, let's go to him in prayer. Our Father, we come to you again, calling you Father, not because that's how we start prayers, but because you are our Father. You are a kind, gentle, and loving Father who delights to give good gifts to your children. And if we ask for bread, you're not going to give us a stone. If we ask for fish, you're not going to give us a snake. And we come to you um, considering these prayers, knowing that we fail as prayers, but also thankful that your grace covers our lack of prayer. But longing to pray more and longing to, not, to remove this one barrier that may exist between us and our prayers, and that is the idea that you have made plans in the, for, the, for, the, for the world, and our prayers aren't going to accomplish much because you've already got your mind made up. So I pray that that would remove one barrier to our prayers and encourage us to persevere and to remind ourselves that you're good and generous and you long to give good gifts, and that you never have any evil intention, and in the end you will bring us to the good place, to the good land to be with yourself. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.